Welcome to Directly Correct, a People Arts podcast with Cole and Scott. Today's guest, Dr. Seku Burmese. Whatever you want to do, man. I'm ready. I'm ready. We could talk you about dissertation if you think that'll be of interest. Um, or if that's ancient history, uh, I could talk about stuff that's here now. I'm, I'm pretty much prepared to go anywhere. Well, if your dissertation's anything like my dissertation, that means it's extremely boring and nobody will ever want to read it. So I don't know. Maybe we leave that one on the shelf. All right. That's fine. All right. Are you ready to get started? Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. Well, welcome. You're you're here at the Directionally Correct podcast, a people analytics podcast with Cole Knapper and Scott Hines. Uh, just a little housekeeping note. Uh, Scott is traveling right now, so it's uh, the People Analytics Podcast with just cold today, and we have our esteemed guest, Dr. Seiko Burmese. Uh, Seiko, let me introduce you real quick, and then I'll, I'll kind of start peppering you with questions. How do you feel about that? You good? Let's do it. Awesome. Well, Dr. Burmese, he is the Associate Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at the Keenan Flagler Business School at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. His research explores how human capital impacts firm performance, survival, and growth. Um, interestingly, he is an associate editor at the um, Academy of Management uh, Journal, which is the flagship empirical journal for the Academy of Management. That's pretty cool. He's also a fellow at the Feline, I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, Research Institute and the Center for uh, the War for Talent. Um, so pretty esteemed uh, you know, academic in this space, but he's also been in the practical side working for Deloitte in the past. Um, so Dr. Burmese, tell, yeah. tell us a little bit about what it's like on Franklin Street in Chapel Hill, <laughs> or I, I don't know, I lived in Durham for just a little bit of, over a decade ago. So I'm a slightly familiar with the area. Well, yeah. what, what's your favorite part of the triangle? Um, so I, I'll preface this by saying I moved there two years ago. Uh, really a year ago in the midst of the pandemic. So I have not really yet experienced true triangle-ness. Um, my favorite part right now, oh man, is probably the, um, the, uh, the bike trails. Um, oh yeah. So the, um, the American uh, tobacco trail that they kind of have through, I have a bike. I was like, I should ride bikes more. And now it's just like this beautiful protected area. And I go on these long rides and listen to podcasts and just forget about life's troubles. So I, I really enjoy that. Um, second to that is probably, um, um, sadly, my office, because I spend a lot of time there. And I actually like having an office where it's uh, nice and quiet. Uh, Franklin Street is great. I avoided it during Final Four. It was um, a madhouse. They were like burning stuff. But it was uh that's just a tradition right <laughs> i mean that that's just the 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 tar heel way exactly so i i uh i watched it from afar my son 11 year old he he wanted to go on campus and i was like you'll die so we uh <laughs> we avoided that but uh we go to the games uh so maybe the the dean dome is, is is probably up there as well i spent a good amount of time there the last year as well 
Nice. Yeah. I mean, actually it's funny you mentioned riding the bikes. I, I, I would ride my bike around the triangle when I was there and I figured out it was a really good way to almost die. And so that actually caused me to stop riding my bike because I fell into the road a few times. I was like, this is not good. Where so were not you doing... riding? You were riding on the streets? <clears throat> I was riding because I had these trails along the edge of the road, but sometimes yeah. there would be bumps I wouldn't see. And I flip over the front of the bike and <laughs> almost kill myself. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to stop doing this. Do you uh, know how to ride a bike? We should probably have this question have you learned formally how to ride a bike you know i mean i i learned when i was a kid i thought i had kept it with me but uh you know i'm a dangerous risk taker at times okay. and uh yeah yeah it's probably <laughs> probably unwise and that's why i why i stopped you need a peloton you need to ride as a group <laughs> that they'll protect you but absolutely well I, I wanted to pivot here for a second because uh, Seiko, you are not an inexperienced podcaster because I believe you have uh, maybe your own podcast, maybe two podcasts. You want to talk about sure. those at all? Sure. Um, I'll do my plug now. So uh, I have one podcast that I started a few years ago. It's about uh, music, rap music in particular. Uh, it's called Hustle and Flows. And so uh, myself and my, my co-host, um, it's part of uh, the Real Sports Guys media conglomerate network uh but really it's a place with uh two middle age ish guys talking about uh hip-hop which i found to be uh a, i needed a place to do this because um and maybe you've experienced this too like the music you love as a kid you realize you don't realize you get older that music is centered around kids it's centered around appealing to 18 to 25 year olds and once you're out of that you're kind of like oh wait a minute so you guys don't care about what I think anymore, but I have opinions. And so this is a place where I kind of give those those opinions. Oh, so you're the old man shaking his fist at those young kids now. That's great. To, to my I try to I'm open minded. Uh, I appreciate real music, but I do. I am a fan of, of newer artists, so to speak. But there is a bit of uh, get off my lawn that happens uh, on the podcast just because my Coles is in his 30s. I'm in my 40s. Uh, we have a love of like 90s hip-hop you know early 2000s hip-hop and what you have now is very different so that's one hustle and flows um so you can uh find that one on uh, wherever you get your podcast and then the second one which is in process is uh much more uh, academic uh it will be affiliated with amj um we haven't figured out exactly what it's going to be but as i kind of mentioned to you it's going to be my opportunity to do my best stephen dubner impersonation uh the freakonomics but do it to uh, management uh, research, so research that's been published in AMJ or research that's AMJ adjacent uh, and uh, kind of discuss it there and hopefully have guests and make it relevant and approachable and, um, you know, make me uh, rich and famous. So that's yeah. Well, if, if you're able to make AMJ relevant, you're a better man than me. So there hey you now. go. Hey, now, come on now. <laughs> I'm an AE. All right. We are yeah. highly relevant, innovative, Send your manuscripts to us. We want them. I want your. I want you, you to send me your manuscript that you're working on right now in people analytics space. It's just caught up in my outbox. I'm sorry. It just hasn't hasn't quite made it out. It's just <laughs> it's too thorough and deep to to get out of the inbox. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, enough about uh, me making fun of you about these podcasts. But uh, th this is great. This is great stuff. And I, you know what I'm hopeful of? I'm hopeful that there's some overlap between the old school, you know, 90s, 90s uh, music and, and our audience. So maybe we'll find some cross pollination there. I was about to say, what is your what is your audience demo? Um, <laughs> are they uh, are they Jay-Z? Are they more uh, uh, Drake? 
I mean, if you had to guess, what's what's probably their top rap artists amongst your your listenership? You know, if I'm if I'm being honest, first of all, I really don't know. But if I had to guess, probably like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles are probably higher than Jay Z. <laughs> I really okay. have no idea who our audience is, um, but we'll find out someday once we, you know, if we ever make any money off this thing, which we're not right now. Um, right. <laughs> but uh, well, I, I'm curious. So how, you know, when you're in the kind of the business school realm, people analytics isn't the first area you think of when you think of like, okay, this is what somebody's primary research focus or even a secondary research focus is. So how, how did you how did you find out about this? How did you whet your appetite? What intrigued you about this field? And, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I, I sort of stumbled into this area, I think, um, actually as a PhD student, right? So um, there's a, you've heard of the the, the term me search uh, that, you know, we go out to study these really <laughs> highfalutin ideas, but really yeah. we just study ourselves. So coming from Deloitte, I was fascinated in a way that I probably didn't realize till many years later with this idea of what is the value of an individual at a firm. And a lot of it had to do with my experience there. There's a billing rate that people have. I knew my billing rate. I knew the billing rate of other people. I would just sit there and say like, man, are these people worth this amount of money? And then um, I was also there during the almost breakup of uh, Deloitte and Touche, and we almost became, you know, a separate company, and then they canceled that. But there was a ton of discussions around, well, if this partner leaves, that's worth $6 million. And if this partner stays, you know, and they were throwing around huge numbers. And I just said, well, how do you know this? And I never really got a satisfied answer, satisfying answer. And so fast forward to now, I'm, I'm, doing a dissertation and I'm trying to find a, a really interesting question. And the question I ended up on was, um, where are the critically important resources in a firm? To what extent do they rely lie in the people within the firm or do, are they more collective reputation, brand, et cetera, et cetera, right? Knowing that I've heard both um, kind of uh, uh, bantered about as far as like, what's what makes Deloitte Deloitte? It's the, it's the, the organization and the history and the resources, or is it, no, it's, one guy, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. Cole who, who has this knowledge. And so I studied this in advertising. And so I collected oh. a ton of data and I looked at movement and I looked at outcomes and, you know, it took two years. And what I found was things that went against what I saw to be kind of these rules of thumb. And I think that's what really kind of uh, cemented for me that we have ideas about how we should be valuing people in organizations, but oftentimes those are wrong. And when you actually look at the data and it takes a ton of time and effort to actually look at the data, what you'll find is something that's very different. And um, uh, not to babble on too much here, but I, having worked on that and done that, I took that into um, kind of a lot of my uh, research and teaching on, and on other places. And so there was an opportunity at University of Texas while I was there uh, working with Ethan Burris, who you know, and we both kind of from very different angles came to this idea of like, organizations aren't good at this and people aren't good at this. And having a class that teaches people how to break down a complex social problem using data within organizations could be useful. Maybe we had no idea. I mean, at the time there weren't any classes like this in business schools. And so we kind of collaborated on this. Uh, Ethan piloted it. It didn't blow up. And so he was like, yeah, I think it's safe. And then I came in and I started teaching and I've pretty much been teaching it since then. It's probably about 
maybe five or six years. And the, the crazy part about that is that makes you quite an early adopter in this space, which I find, you know, pretty impressive. But the other thing that I'm, I'm actually curious about just to dig into for just a second is going back to the Deloitte example, I would say in the consulting context, if you were wanting to make like a really direct linkage to show the value of human capital or the value of an individual human being to a firm, it seems like the consulting context like Deloitte is the slam dunk. It's the best there is in terms of, I mean, imagine doing this for a really matrixed organization. It's, it's mm-hmm. probably almost impossible even to do it indirectly. So I don't know, has that been your experience or tell me, tell me more about that? Um, so I thought a lot about this. Uh, I, looked, I, I ended up with advertising just because they had the best historical data, but I've always wanted to do consulting. Consulting is actually a bit of a mess because of outcomes. So I can give you a really good sense of how much people are valued on paper, how much revenue they generate for the firm, but to the extent that that value actually shows up in the outcomes, the product that they create, the value that it has for the client, that's all a mystery uh, on the consulting side. Interesting. Um, And so, even in, in advertising, it was a bit, it was a mess. And so um, I did a, a project a few years later looking at law, law firms and specifically lobbyists. And I ended up with lobbyists because that was as close as I could get with freely available archival data around the amount of work that an individual does for a client. And I, I work with the client as a lobbyist. The client works with me. That relationship is somewhat singular. It's not as if I'm on a team of 10 people and we're all in this thing. And so studying this, I got a sense of, okay, this is, there's some value that this client is actually getting from this one individual in this large firm mm-hmm. and they're willing to do it. And then I looked at mobility because you know mobility is always great. So I looked at when a lobbyist leaves, do the clients leave? Or do they yeah, stay okay. as a way to, to kind of uh, parse this out? So consulting is, is great because it, I mean, all professional service firms are great because you have an amount that is given of my time. So there's some kind of value that's put to my time. But if the outcome or the product that I create is collective, or if the product that I create is ambiguous as far as quality, meaning you don't know how good it is when I give it to you because you're not, you don't have the expertise to even evaluate that then that's where I think it becomes, uh, it becomes problematic. And so I'm still you know, trying to find the, the perfect slam dunk where there is value put on to individuals and value put onto products. Um, and the research in this vein has really been done looking at um, kind of more simple tasks. So people doing rudimentary tasks and how productive they are. And so sure. economists have done you know, a fair amount of this and that's good, but we know the dollar amounts and the risks increase a tremendous amount once you start going to the professional I am a million dollars five million dollars for this person how, are you sure this person is worth five how can we tell how can we get some insight to that and that's I think the question that I'm I'm continually picking at and trying to trying to get a better sense of well you know what's interesting about that well there's so many things interesting first of all and I want to commend you on a few of them but one is you know the organizations I've worked for it's it's Obviously, it's incredibly challenging to know about the person level, but we usually look at it from the persona level or the role level. And that's where it's more easy to quite like, what, what about the median individual? What contribution are they having versus, you know, the maximum and the minimum and that type of thing? Mm-hmm. Um, but the things I wanted to commend you on in particular, what first of all, is you found the perfect industries. 
And what I mean by that is because these are very me searchy industries in the terms of their you know, lobbyists, it's based on their reputation, mm-hmm. the advertising industry based on their reputation, and the consulting industry based on their reputation. They're ones that are going to freely give this information because it, they could stand to benefit from that. And they, you know, the, their egos get checked a little bit by tracking this stuff over time. Yep. But the other thing I wanted to commend you on was really creative uses of archival data. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that is an completely undertapped area in the social sciences and in management in general. Um, so really, really great work there. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know, like if, if you could do it, um, it, like if you, I guess, you know, this is, this is always a silly hypothetical, but if you could play kind of God for a minute, you had access to all the data that you would want, how would you kind of design the study? Oh man, this is like a, a comprehensive exam question. This is good. I might actually steal this one. Hopefully none of the PhD students at uh, UNC are, are listening because this is going to be on there. I can guarantee year. you they probably aren't. <laughs> <laughs> um, man, uh, so I would probably start with um, selection is is a is a is a big question for me, and so the biggest. Um, methodological obstacle to looking at selection is most organizations know who they selected. They have a sense of what they think was the selection criteria, but they have very little idea of who they didn't select and how well they did, right? The counterfactual, right? And so if I had the ability to, you know, magic wand this thing, it would be to have a sense of who was the opportunity set that an organization had to uh, choose from what process they went, how they selected, track that person, and then be able to track the people who were finalists, almost got the job, uh, went somewhere else, and then track them. And now again, Magic Wand, I know where they went. I know I can compare the org that they ended up with with the org that you know they, they were trying out for, et cetera, et cetera. Um, preference rankings are always also big for me, right? Another big uh, factor, methodological obstacle for this is someone took a job, was it the job they wanted or was it a job that they had to take, right? And so a priori being able to understand people, you know, this is my top, this is my bottom, this is my middle. I'll tell you about another project where I'm also trying to get at this, um, that dynamic that's outside of uh, of this one. But, you know, that would be my magic wand. I'd be able to track almost the applicant pool and then look at selection for firms, but also be able to track everyone and, you know, five, 10 years out, you know, um, yeah. to do that. So I, I love this. Um, Seiko, I knew we were best friends. I, I knew it when you joined the podcast. <laughs> you hit on one of my riffs that I say, it, which is when it comes in selection, everyone is always focused on false positives, right? Mm-hmm. People who, who got the job that maybe shouldn't have. I am so bored by false positives. I know I've done a lot of research <laughs> in that in the past. The thing that gives me so much curiosity is false negatives. People who we should have selected but didn't, yep. right? And the the possibilities and the counterfactual. At a prior organization, we actually did some pretty extensive work, not on on false negatives and selection, mm-hmm. but but high performers who left the organization and kind of tracking, doing like a where are they now exercise. Mm-hmm. And that that was right, I can't really get into the details of it, but that was some really really interesting work that we did. But I'm sure. curious, you 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 kind of whetted my appetite a second ago with you know <laughs> you said you've done this in in a different context. What yeah. what context have you done it elsewhere? 
Um, and so this one is looking at uh, law school admissions. So one area that where admission and selection and the population is pretty well known, and you can do the whole tracking thing is with admin. So uh, with a former doctoral student, uh, Wei Yang, who was at UT, uh, she, her husband was in law school. And so this, I, it, it's amazing how like you find out about data just by talking to people. This is, I, this is why I always talk, when I do talk to strangers, I'm always just fascinated. Because I was like, and how do you know this? And where do you get that data? She was like, oh, there's this website called lawschoolnumbers.com where everyone kind of logs on and they share their information and then they find out who's going where. And it's a, it's a way for them to find out about the job market, right? And it's a, an ingenious idea, um, but she was able to scrape all this data for you know, 15 years. And so in essence, what we got is all these people who were applying to law schools, all the different schools they applied to, and then on the school side, all the people that applied to the school and who they selected. And so we're able to kind of look at people who got into multiple, the same school, but they went to one, where what were their, you know, the outcomes for that school versus other schools. And so it was a way to compare. Now we're looking at the firm level in this, um, this study, but it, it does give some insight into the selection and the counterfactuals are there in a way that you can't really get in most labor markets. That is so freaking interesting. And, and you know, it's, um, again, I want to commend you on another creative use of archival data. Please You're like commending me, Cole. I, I, I will take all the commendations. <laughs> you, you are the master. I, I got to give you credit. Well, and when uh, I, I know that you probably haven't, you haven't heard us talk about it, but one of the things that Scott and I have been talking about is this concept of personalization. It got me thinking, you know, a lot of people like, like if you're applying to law school and you always wonder, you know, had I taken the other law school, what my, what would have my life been like, mm -hmm. right? Sliding doors moment. Uh -huh. Exactly. Well, you could actually, from a personalization and persona standpoint, you could answer that question using data sets like this. So that would be such an interesting kind of research project unto itself, not even people analytics related, but just kind of helping out humanity to be yeah. able like, be, be able, like, what if, what if I had done the other thing? And, and that, that's so interesting in my mind. And I, I, I believe, you know, if I had, uh, I've only had some conversations with some of these platform companies, which I think have a tremendous impact on the labor market. I mean, you know, to the extent like that the that the ad search market is in essence Google, the labor market is becoming you know two to three companies, right? That yeah. are pretty much driving all the traffic. They will be a time. Maybe it's already. It's here. not career builder anymore. Is career builder one of the monster? Three? It's monster. monster. It's definitely uh, monster. Monster is the one. Uh, so let's say there's two big players. Um, they have pretty good insight into the full market. And so they can do, uh, I know they have the, the, you know, the, the means and the abilities. I don't know if they're doing this. I, you know, haven't had those conversations, but the ability to do these sliding doors sort of analyses because they kind of have everybody and where they are now and what their work history is and where they're applying. And if they got the job and someone that is matched to them on 18 different indicators and they took the job and now here's where they are five years later and here's where you are five years later. So that is, absolutely something I would expect to be offered for one of these large labor market platform companies. Oh, yeah. I'll just say it that way. <laughs> well, there's there's two things that that makes me think of. One is this, and I've seen it a lot in the last year or so, is this, this notion of creating talent intelligence teams internally 
And one mm-hmm. of the, the techniques that they're utilizing that I imagine these big no-name companies that you're talking about are considering or have already put into production is like propensity scoring. Yeah. Like what if you just were able to look at the whole list of basically the whole marketplace, not just the people who applied to jobs using your platform, but the whole marketplace and say, what is the fit with, you know, the role, the organization, even things like D and I, if it happened to come up. And I think there's a lot of interesting use cases there. And if you do talk to people in the industry and they are looking into this stuff, let me know, because I'd love to partner with you guys. That would be really interesting. Yeah, the the people who I have these conversations with, they tend to be on the you know the R and D side, product mm-hmm. side, and they love to have back of the envelope conversations. And I'm like, hey, let's follow up. They're like, uh, yeah, no, right? Because you know, and I get it. It's highly competitive, and a lot of this stuff is highly proprietary and and, and the like. So my fear is I won't know about it until it's already out there. But I I wanna I wanna help. So, you know, if you're one of those companies and you're looking for so I can keep a secret. I won't tell anybody. Uh, I just <laughs> he won't mention it on a podcast. I, I will not mention it on a podcast. I, I will be one of those like, oh, sorry, Cole. No, I can't talk to you I about this anymore. Um, but yeah, th- that to me is is the um, is kind of the, the the future where I think some of these really in, oh, almost like how when the census data <clears throat> became available. And you, if you had a very narrow question that you want to ask, you can go into the census and they have all this crazy rich data. I think something similar perhaps uh, can be done uh, on the private side, which I think would be uh, really fascinating. So yeah, I, I will keep my ears to the ground. Yeah, the king of archival data strikes again using the census data. I mean, it's like <laughs> you, you've got a formula, man, and it works every time. You know, just keep bringing them in. I, I love data. So it's, it's, if, if anything that once I knew I loved data, then I knew I was in the right industry. Once I, a new data set excited me in a way that probably wasn't normal. I was like, oh, I probably chose the right profession. Absolutely. Well, speaking of secretive industries, um, I know that you've done some work in the private equity and maybe even the venture capital world. Um, do you care? Well, first of all, maybe, cause I imagine like, Private equity and venture capital are kind of the fuels of our society, but people very often don't know very much about them. So maybe mm-hmm. you could explain a little bit about that industry and then maybe how you've done some partnership and research with them. Yeah. Okay. Uh, a quick primer on what private equity is. Sure. Um, so uh, it, in short, people know about public markets, um, public equities, the stock market. And so a company goes public. Um Anybody that is on New York Stock Exchange can buy equity. You are a part owner of the company and you have some say uh, indirectly into how they do. And you also benefit from the money that they make. Private equity does uh, work similarly, except there is no big public market, right? And so these are conversations that are had uh, amongst uh, very, very rich people who uh, are convinced to pull pool their money together and, and give control to uh, a handful of very smart people to invest it for them. And these companies buy tons and tons of companies, right? And one of the interesting things in, in my view is I kind of came up with public companies being all the rage and the, the number of public companies is shrinking and public companies, uh, really big, humongous companies are opting not to go public and stay private. So understanding the private markets and how private equity uh, works becomes more and more important as privately owned companies uh, uh, are, you know, employ more people, are larger, et cetera. Yeah. 
Well, and, and just, uh, I mean, if you were to ask the average, you know, human being in the U.S. or even even the average people analytics analyst, I bet you they didn't know that. I bet you they didn't know that there, you know, there's less and less companies going public and staying private. And so I think that's that's just really powerful context. But maybe maybe you could give us a little teaser into some of the work that you've done there. Yeah, so I've had the, the benefit of some really great co-authors who um, study venture capital and private equity from a very different angle. But, you know, I'm always uh, on the hunt for data. And so once I, I, I find like, oh, you've maybe collected data on individuals in all of these private equity firms, like the whole industry for another project, I think it can be used to look at mobility and movement, et cetera. And so um, the, the most recent one um, that, that's been published that I, I guess I can talk about is uh, one that's blended private equity with political ideology. And um, this is one that uh, came from just my interest in uh, thinking about what drives people to move and select companies. And there's been a hundred years of research on this. The thing that I think has been studied uh, not enough is political ideology and how that's become a larger and larger part of discussions in organizations, dynamics in organizations, organizations becoming more activist. And so uh, what uh, I did with Rory McDonald, my, my co-authors at Harvard, we tracked uh, the political ideology of all these private equity firms in the industry over a long period of time. And the simple question was, do we see agglomeration, which we thought we would, but for me, it was more interesting is, does uh, ideological misfit drive mobility? Meaning if you are the sole conservative in a very uh, liberal uh, small firm or the reverse, the sole liberal and conservative firm, does that increase your likelihood to want to leave, decrease it or not? Right. With my view being, it should, but, and here again, you know, the context matters. We're talking about an industry that's very tough to break into. It's very tough to get a good job. And the amount of money you make is huge. If ever there was an industry where people were like, I make enough money not to care about what your political ideology is, it's this one. Right. And so if we we're going to find an effect, we'd find it here. Um, and so we kind of stacked stack the odds against finding an effect, but that was exactly why uh, I thought it'd be a great content. Well, I mean, yeah, that definitely fits into kind of the traditional attraction, selection, attrition type of yeah. framework. You would, you would definitely, I would, ex I would hypothesize to see that finding. But what is so interesting to me about that, first of all, I remember I was at a conference one time and I heard this guy speak about how he used to work at, you know, in the private equity kind of hedge fund environment. He says, the only place where I typically saw grown men cry at work. And I was like, wow, okay, this is, this is pretty intense. Um, but it, you know, the other part of it that's interesting to me is just with like, I think the, the article I saw that you wrote about ideological misfits came out in 2018. Talk about how prescient that is for the current climate that we yeah. have with, you know, companies every day being asked more and more to kind of take political stances one way or the other and, yeah. and what effect that that might have on the workers that work there. I think that this is, I mean, you're, you hit the nail on the head and you were right, you know, ahead of the curve in that regard. So, I mean, I, I don't, I only have compliments to give you. I got to stop. I got to find something I don't like about your work. <laughs> Dig it up. It's fine. All you have to do is look, I'll send you some of my reviews um, for a journal and then you'll, you'll get uh, all the <laughs> negative comments. Yeah. You need. All those um, reviewer two comments. Yeah, yeah. All the reviewer two comments. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, you know, in essence, what we found is it has an effect, uh, even though we didn't think it would. And the effect is not symmetrical, 
right? So being a liberal misfit versus being conservative misfit leads to difference. In, in short, we found conservative misfits much more likely to leave, liberal misfits actually less likely to leave. Interesting. Um, Any reason for that? Or is that, are you just kind of hypothesizing when you came up, when you come up with a reason? Yeah, we didn't have a hypothesis. We just wanted to see what we could see. Um, but we did uh, a number of interviews afterwards to try mm -hmm. and kind of figure this out. And what kind of emerged is when you're a misfit, you can take uh, one or two approaches. One is I don't fit here. I should, I need to go. And the other is I need to hold the line. I need to represent this viewpoint within this organization and for whatever reason and there's some that tie into what we know about liberalism and conservatism that liberals tend to take more of this i have to be here i can evangelize this i hold the line i can work the machine from the inside whatever it might be they're more likely to adopt that mindset which leads them to stick around and stay whereas uh you don't see nearly as much of that I should be here and hold the line and be a representative of this viewpoint here uh, on the other side. And so, you know, the yeah. departures happen more often. When I had heard that there's a correlation from like a big five standpoint between liberalism and like openness to experience. So maybe they're even more open to experiences that are different than their own or something. I, again, I don't know what the, what the reasoning is there. Yeah. We did some armchair theorizing. So uh, openness to experience is one in group, out group, uh, dynamics is another one that it's um, a little bit stronger, uh, the more conservative you are. And so if that's mm -hmm. really key for you, you could imagine like, I, I don't like being in the out group. I yeah. want to go someplace. Uh, and so what we find is those people tend to leave and go to places that are closer on their scale. Um, and, and so when we started this, right. Oh man, I can't even remember what year it was, but, but we thought like, oh, this would be interesting. This is before 2016, you know, like we're still just like, oh, we think this is interesting. And from 2016 to 2022, it's been just like all the time, right? I yep. actually have alerts now. Every week. <laughs> it's something. And I think what we talked about in that is, hey, this could be something that people aren't paying attention to as a lot now, but will probably start paying attention more to like, what is the political uh, climate in this organization, which is something that time and time again, we interviewed people for this and they were like, yeah, I, I didn't even think to ask that question. I just went. And then once I got there, I was like, oh, holy smokes. No, this I don't agree with any of this. Now they're much more keyed into that. And so unfortunately, what that leads to is more separation, more self-selection, which is kind of unfortunate because, and we argue this in the paper, the workplace is one of the few places where an individual is likely to spend a lot of time with someone who holds a different ideological view than them. It's not gonna happen at home. It's happening less and less residentially. It doesn't happen in religion, Lord knows. So workplace was one of the few places where you saw mixing because we're a capitalist society. We all want money that we, we overlook a lot of things in pursuit of, of that. If we start to see this become a, a factor that people think about more, my fear is you'll start to have more of these red and blue firms, which is unfortunate because I think there's a lot of good that can be done in organizations. And so, yeah, well, it's that elective uh, sorting of sorts, like the, you know, the sorting hat and Harry Potter or something like yeah. that. But, uh, but it's creating, I guess, more and more dense bubbles between, you know, our society. Well, kind of speaking of, you know, another topic that 
is, is somewhat, um, you know, salient in terms of the current political climate is, you know, pay equity research. And I saw that you had yeah. recently posted an article about some of your colleagues at UNC yeah. about research and pay equity. And, you know, this podcast is a big proponent of first order, second order, and third order effects of things and people only focusing on the first order to the detriment <laughs> of others. And one of the things that I thought was so interesting that you pointed out about that article is that, you know, in, I think I believe it was in New York City where they've changed the laws. They showed that, you know, the pay structures did get more egalitarian, but, and that's kind of the first order consequence that you would hope between the genders. Yep. But then the second order was everybody got paid less. And I <laughs> yeah. was like, wow. That's <laughs> well, not yeah, I don't think that's the outcome everybody was hoping for here. So I don't know. Correct. Do you want to talk about that at all? Correct. Yeah. So, um, so this is some some great work by uh, Jesse Davis and uh, Paige Umet, who are uh, my colleagues at UNC, and they've been doing this research for a while, and it's all it's really really good. Um, but you know, you hit it on the head, which is this idea that pay transparency as a resolution to pay disparity, right? Pay in, inequity. Um, you only really want transparency because you think it will prevent the, these gaps, right? Gender being the one that, that, that uh, we spent the most time in. And so the idea that more information is better makes some intuitive sense. But time and time again, you know, we, we find more information leads to some really un, uh, unintended consequences. Um, so, you know, on one hand, pay equity amounts, differences decrease. But on the other hand, how they decrease can sometimes be, be the unintended, like you mentioned. Um, the other thing that uh, I think you know should should be noted is how difficult it is to switch from opaque to transparent, right? And uh, the article there's also uh, a woman is quoted in there who's who's doing this with with clients, and how um, you know the psychological piece of knowing what everyone makes just you know we are comparative social comparative. Keeping yeah. up with the Joneses, you know? Yeah. We, yeah, we we only know how we're doing when we see how others are doing, right? Yep. Uh, if I ask you how you're doing, you have to take a second to say, all things can say, you know, that's just how we are. And so once you you uh, you 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 lift the veil, so to speak, uh, organizations have to be really mindful of the fact that people are going to lose their stuff, right? Like it's 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 not going to be it's not going to be enjoyable. And so don't do it until you're ready to also deal with. The fact that people know, like, this person's making more than me, this person's making less than me. And, you know, having worked in, like, public university settings for so long now, like, the salaries generally are available somewhere. And so you, you, you I, I've kind of gotten used to, like, well, if I really want to know, I can always look and, and see. But also recognize that that's not the end of the deal. But I, I know I'm socialized into that, and most people are not. So, you know, aside from the fact that in general, you see some wonky things happening because people are trying to game the system. Uh, also recognize how difficult it is to even implement something around pay transparency should not be uh, understated. Yeah, I know uh, some previous organizations I used to work for, they were trying to bridge this, this gap because it, it is a challenging to go from obfuscated to transparent. 
They said they usually started with compa ratio, first of all, because nobody knows what compa ratio is. And they're like, well, at least people won't know what this is, but we'll start sharing it with people, let people know kind of where they fall on the spectrum. But I think there's another kind of understated component again about pay transparency, which is like, okay, now we know where we sit. And I know if I'm being paid equitably or inequitably, but it also kind of reinforces a hierarchy because you, you know, in the university context, you know, that full professor who's making twice as much or three times as much as you, it's like, oh, that person matters more to this Way company more. than I yes. do. Yep. And, uh, and, and maybe there's some, you know, again, second order and third order consequences to that that are less than savory as well. Yeah, you know, I, I think I am probably less uh, uh, negative on bureaucracy and power and status differences than maybe some of my other colleagues, only because to a certain extent, you want them. It's 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 weird. Like people want flat organizations, but if you told them, like, well, hey, once you get promoted and once you get somewhere else, you you're really doing the same job and you're kind of still doing the same thing because we're such a flat organization and your pay is not going to increase that much. All of a sudden, people are like, wow, this doesn't sound great, right? Yeah, so some cognitive a, dissonance there. Yeah, there's a recognition that people want to climb, they want to progress, and there's deeply embedded in everyone's mind again if they subscribe to the capitalist system that. The higher up you go, the more rewards you get. Yeah. And so showing that and demonstrating that I don't think is a bad thing, especially if you are aware of the value that person brings. So here's where the equity theory to me reigns supreme. Yes. Which is the 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 proportionality, the ratio, right? The proportionality yeah. matters. You know, so I, for example, know the dean makes a significant more, uh, you know, more um, amount more uh, more than I do. I also recognize, man, he works way more than I do. Like just doing things I do not want to do. Sitting in meetings, dealing with media requests, going out to donors, flying around, maybe not seeing his family. I was like, I get it. I I would never be like, I should make as much as the dean, right? But there is uh, that ratio. You know, if the dean was making 50x what I was making, I'd be like, no, wait a minute now. <laughs> you know, and yeah. so that's the, that's the conversation that, and it's the gradations. Um, I this is a way tangent, so, so pull me back if you need to pull me back. But I, I get fascinated sitting in these talks about inequity. Mm -hmm. And I've asked this question to a ton of people, economists, finance people, OB people. And I say, I think we all recognize that we aren't going to be equal. But it seems like there's some kind of line uh, of inequality that is acceptable, meaning which it is different to different human beings too. Like I think of like Hofstede's cultural dimensions, like power distance is sort of like, the, where is that line for you, right? Yes. And, and, and so that's kind of a, a, analogous to what you're saying, but yeah, continue. I'm sorry, this is really interesting. No, no, no. So, so I was like, so, so what's the line here, right? Like CEO to uh, staff worker multiples, mm -hmm. right? It used yep. to be 25X, now it's like 400X. And I was like, okay, 400x is too much, 25x maybe not enough. 100, 125, meaning like I, I'm really interested and I feel like we can get an answer. Like what's an acceptable amount of Oh yeah, that, that's an empirical question. Yeah. You know, there, there's a crowdsourced answer to be found out there. I love this. Yeah. Maybe and, there's uh, some archival data on it. Who knows? Oh man. Uh, yeah. Uh, but see, the other thing is it's, it's got to be a bit of a survey thing because mm -hmm. it's acceptability, right? Like how many, at what point are people like, okay, I know how much this person How needs. far is too far? They yeah, deserve it. Good yeah. for them. 
good for them. I'm I'm fine. We can all respect each other. I don't know if you're familiar with Lincoln Electric. Uh, and um, so they're a company that, they do pay for pay for performance. They do piece work. Okay. And so you get paid for what you create, not for how many hours you work. Mm-hmm. And I use this in my class because it's a very different. But in short, the people there are like, yeah, there's a lot of disparity in pay, but it's equitable. Meaning yeah. if you're willing to put in the work, you make a ton of money. If you're not, X, Y, Z. And there's a, a, a comment, one of these guys is like, look, I can respect everyone. And so that's really, you, you want to get to the point where it's like, I know there's disparities, but th- it's done in a way that I feel like I can respect everyone for the value that they bring. And I know that it's done. And yeah, la- last point is that it only works for Lincoln Electric because they spend a ton of resources to make sure it's fair. Yeah. And if you want to do pay transparency and you're not willing to allocate a ton of resources to make sure everything is measured and we've double checked and we've made sure there's no, like, because that's what you need. There's a whole uh, uh, division at Lincoln Electric that's just time study. They just look to how long does it take you to do stuff and they measure and they remeasure and they make sure that the rates are fair. How many organizations so That gets into this? something yeah. we've talked about on here quite a few times about objective measures of performance, yeah. right? And how important they are. If, you, if you've actually put in the time and effort to do the time and motion studies, yep. that can make a real difference. And it's truly equitable because you know for certain how long a task takes and how valuable it is to the firm. And what you don't know is that you've been baiting me uh, with something that Scott's <laughs> been wanting me to talk about for a while, this theory uh-huh. that everybody gets paid the same. We're not going to go into that today. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to give the people what they want. Um, so, but Is this like a doctrine that you guys are working on? Like what's happening? Well, this is a, <laughs> let's call it a, a doctrine I've been sharing at dinner parties and, and happy oh. hours for about 10 years. And everybody thinks I'm stupid and crazy, but it, there, there's some there there. And so I, I'm going to get into it sometime on the podcast, but not All today. Right. All right. All right. <laughs> um, <laughs> But Seku, this is this has been great. Uh, you have been an amazing guest. Um, any any kind of closing words that you'd like to share with our audience? Um, I guess. Uh, well, one is a reflection, which is um, I am very very grateful. One of what your your hope when you become an academic, you pick a topic when you're when you don't know anything, and then you hope to God that people care about it at some point. Um, because once it's picked, it's picked. You can't switch. And so I, I picked this interest in human capital and the value that it brings to organizations. And so I love what I do. It didn't really matter how popular it was, but for it now to become in vogue and to people having this renaissance has really just been, for me, really gratifying. And so I'm sure your audience is uh, filled with a lot of people who probably feel this way. Also, this is something that you were doing. Um, you know, it's like the sabermetrics people in, in, in sports that were just these nerds looking at stats. And now all of a sudden, you know, uh, money ball blows up and now they're like, Oh, everyone loves this stuff. Wow. I can, you know, and so it, it, it's been great. And I think, um, there's a ton more, uh, in this space, like we've been talking about, and I'm really excited, uh, to be a part of a community that's moving forward. And I want to, uh, thank you and Scott for, uh, being part of the people who, who pull community together and uh, keep me keep me in the loop because uh, one day you're gonna have like a directionally correct uh, t-shirts, palooza. t-shirts. No, you're gonna have a palooza. <laughs> you're gonna have some kind of thing. And I just want to make sure I, I get I get VIP uh, 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 ticket to 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 come to that. So yes, 
when we okay. promised to have some 90s hip hop playing at the Palooza. So, All right. so there I'll you go. I'll a playlist. It'd be my pleasure. But uh, yeah, no, we, we get to be, you know, the Bill James fans from Sabermetrics, you know, they <laughs> they probably now are upset about Moneyball because they're like the jaded cops who are like, ah, we were there first, you know. And so we, we get to probably make those same complaints someday about people analytics and human capital. But you've been doing really great stuff, Seku. And for those of you who've made it this far in the podcast, again, I apologize that Scott's not here. You're probably tired of hearing my voice, but grateful to hear Seku. So thank you so much for joining us today. This has been Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Cole and not Scott. Thanks. uh, Thanks again.